We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Good to see you out there. When the Scripture talks about the sword of God, the sword of the Lord, as some are fond of saying, talking about the Word of God, especially in the New Testament passage in Hebrews 4, right? Hebrews 4, 12, the Word of God is quick and powerful. That song is uh, alluding to that when it says to um, our Savior in the second verse, gird on thy mighty sword. Let that Word have its surgical work in our hearts. And so you have sang those words, you have prayed that prayer in song, so I pray that today that prayer will be answered, that God will work by his word in your heart. Let's turn our Bibles for our scripture reading to Ezekiel and the 44th chapter, Ezekiel 44, as we continue looking at the millennial temple and its structure and function, we see now a very unique part of it called the East Gate. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. Isn't that interesting? It is a one-use gate. One use. All built, all prepared for one use. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Also, he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. Interesting. Did you notice, let us have no more of your abominations? Verse 7, when you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house, And when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept 
the charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, so, I'm sorry, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. And the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity, and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed." Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. I want you to notice here that God is saying there are generational consequences to sin, that the unfaithfulness of the prior generations is going to have an impact on those future ones who minister at this temple. Verse 15, But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. And it shall be, whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court of the, of the, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. And in their holy garments, they shall not sanctify the people. They shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not take as wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person, only for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister may they defile themselves. After he is cleansed, they, he, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering in the inner court, says the Lord God. It shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. The best of all first fruits of any kind and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priests. Also, you shall give to the priests the first of your ground meal, 
to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priest shall not eat anything, bird or beast, that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. One of the objections that's raised to this section of Scripture is, hey, you mean that we're going to have a reconstituted sacrificial system in the millennium after Christ returns? The answer, the short answer, yes, there will. And if we don't, then the Levites will go hungry. You understand? They eat of this sacrificial system. They will go hungry if there were no sacrificial uh, actions there during the millennial kingdom. Now, how does that all work? Can't preach on that again now. I've done that before, but if you want to ask afterwards, we can talk about that, why there is going to be that. But be that uh, as it may, just remind yourself this. In fact, I mentioned this to a fellow last night uh, who somehow as maybe too commonly the case, got under the impression that in the Old Testament, look, you had to keep the, do the sacrifices in order to be saved. Wrong. No one is ever saved in any age by anything other than faith in God and in the revelation that he's given. Of course, for us, that means faith in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. But no one is ever saved by works. There's no prior age to this one where all poor things, they had to be saved by works. Never. That's just not the way of salvation in any age. And so to say, well, they had to do works like sacrifices in the Old Testament, that's a misunderstanding. But if you take that misunderstanding and import it into the millennial kingdom and say, oh, well, you're saying there's going to be sacrifices that people have to do to be saved. No, I never said that. Never, ever said it before and certainly aren't saying it now. Those sacrifices will have a different purpose than, than the commonly thought of earning salvation way of thinking about it. A little change in direction this morning in terms of our series in preaching uh, will direct me to ask you to turn your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 21 as I kind of swap the morning and evening series today. Uh, we actually finished Jonah last week, but I thought I would do a follow-up message from another prophet named Nahum. Nahum deals with the same people, Nineveh, and the Assyrian Empire, but I thought it would be more appropriate for me to teach that this evening and instead take this message that I prepared, which would normally be for the Sunday evening and Wednesday evening services, and share that with you this morning. I sometimes like to do that if I think the uh, material is more important or more relevant um, to us because we do have a larger crowd on Sunday mornings. And also just to kind of give you a little flavor if you're here but not there uh, of what we're doing. Um, I put about as much effort as uh, I do on a Sunday morning message into a Sunday night message and a little less, of course, on Wednesday because there's less time and less material. But uh, you are, um, if you don't come on Sunday nights, you are missing a good deal of the effort that I've put into studying the scriptures, and I want to encourage you to rethink if you are doing that and not paying attention to it. We do this uh, for your benefit. It's for my benefit, too. I mean, it'd be worth me doing it just by, by myself to study the Word. Um, and when I you know, write these long notes like this, it helps me to organize uh, what I'm thinking about the passage and cover all the bases which I feel is important to look at all the details of Scripture, um, but it's also for your benefit. And as I've mentioned before, uh, 
Of course, these are available on the website. Uh, put them there this morning, the notes. And what you're looking at is what I'm looking at. I'm just preaching from the, you know, the same exact notes that you have. There's nothing uh, additional there. If I put in something additional, it may mean that I thought about it when I was studying and didn't want to type it or uh, have room for it or I just am thinking of it right now as I'm preaching. And that does happen, too. As I'm preaching, sometimes I'll think of a correlating portion of scripture that I want to add in there. So you can jot those down on the side if you want. In Matthew chapter 21, uh, we've read in our series about the triumphal entry of the Lord into uh, Jerusalem. We've dealt with some of the chronological issues and differences between Matthew and Mark's gospel and the other gospels. We're not going to get into that at all today. We've addressed those thoroughly. But he went into the city uh, on Sunday, then again on Monday, cleaned out the temple, got rid of, uh, again, he did in John chapter 2 before, years, years earlier, but comes again and cleans out the merchandisers, the uh, entrepreneurs who were selling animals, uh, exchanging currencies, and turning the temple into a place of business. It is not a place of business, God said. Uh, the Lord, uh, zeal for God's house, had eaten him up. And he said that this, this house, you've made a den of thieves, but it's supposed to be what? A house of prayer. And it's not only a house of prayer for the Jews, it's a house of prayer for all nations. And in fact, that's what it will be again in the millennial kingdom with that temple that we looked at in Ezekiel 44. It will be a place of prayer for all the nations uh, to come. Uh, and we have looked at the Lord's, uh, so his entry, his cleansing of the temple, uh, his cursing of a fig tree, and how that fig tree was a perfect picture of the nation of Israel, fruitless as it was. And then uh, we are seeing this morning in verses 23 through 27 how Jesus is questioned by the leaders. And this is just another Really, he's already faced one criticism from the leaders when he came into the city and the people were crying out to, to Jesus, Hosanna, to the son of David, and the, and the leaders there couldn't stand it, and so they criticized him. But here's the second, if you will, of those critical moments in which the Lord is facing opposition from the religious leaders. And it says in verse 23, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say for men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The two questions actually are interconnected. You'll see why in just a moment why that is. Um, but it's an interesting approach that the Lord uses. The text here reports a straightforward accounting of the chief priests and elders confronting Jesus about how he could be doing what he was doing. They asked a question that would put Jesus into a no-win situation, no matter how he answered it. You know, they thought they were very clever. No matter how he answered it, uh, he was going to get in trouble with them. But Jesus turns the tables on them and asks them a similar question, a, a technique often used in rabbinic debate. 
They do not answer his question, and in turn, he does not answer their question. The topic of this text, which is the authority by which Jesus was doing his work, presents a good opportunity for us to speak about the topic of authority in a more general way, and uh, we'll do that in the last segment of the message this morning. We start out then with the question. The chief priests and the elders of the people fashioned themselves to be the authorities in the temple. Of course, the Romans were in charge in the government, but they allowed the Jews a measure of autonomy over the temple precinct, and so they were really the ones who, it was under Jewish jurisdiction. How could Jesus come in there and remove the merchandisers and take the spotlight from the existing leadership and and arrogate that authority to himself? So they thought. So they asked Jesus what his authority is and who gave it to him. And it comes across to my way of reading it like, just who do you think you are to come in here and to do that, Jesus? That's the feeling I get from their questions. Now, they do ask the question in two ways, or really it's two different forms of the question, if you will, where they say, um, by what authority and who gave you this authority? So I'm going to kind of treat them as one question, the authority question, but there are different nuances between these two questions. First of all, it's like, what part of the law are you appealing to here? And, of course, we saw that when he cleaned the temple out. He said, you've made this a den of thieves just like it was in the Old Testament, and it needs to be cleansed out. So that's really, you know, that's one of his authority bases, if you will. But they were asking, what part of the law are you appealing to here? And secondly, who is it that put you in charge of all this? So the first question is an impersonal question about the source of authority, the document, the law, the principle that gives you the right to do this. And the second question is a personal source of authority, namely, who is the person or the governmental body that puts you in charge of this and allows you to do this? So, for example, we could say of a police officer, on what authority are you doing that work that, you know, that making that arrest? Well, he would say, you know, Michigan compiled laws, section so-and-so, and blah, 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 and he gives you the whole thing, and, you know, you've broken the law. That's the law. That's the, on what authority he's doing his work. And then you say, well, who gave you that authority? And he would say, well, I was appointed by the governor or the chief of police in the city or whatever. You see the difference there? There's the law, and then there's the installment of the person to be able to function as a keeper of the law, if you will, or a protector of of the law. So basically it boils down to the same thing. What's your authority here? Now if Jesus answered their question, I'm doing this on my own authority, what do you think they would do? Well, they would love it, right? Because that would actually undermine the things that he's said up to this point. For example, he spoke about in John 5:17 doing the same work as his father. In John 5.30, he was seeking the will of the Father who sent him. In John 8.28, let me uh, go to at least this one uh, out of these three that I'm citing here. Uh, John 8 and verse number 20, uh, did I say 28? Yeah, let me see here. Oh yeah, here it is. And then Jesus said to him, 
uh, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. So he taught before that he was doing the will of his Father and that he was doing the things that God sent him to do. He wasn't doing it on his own. He spoke as his Father taught him. And so he couldn't answer the question on my own authority because that would not be true. And, and furthermore, the Pharisees would hardly believe a man who said, I'm coming in my own authority, especially Jesus, who was opposite of them in so many ways. Now, they should have believed this man because he had a unique authority as the Son of God, but, of course, they didn't understand that. On the other hand, so the other way that Jesus could answer is if he answered, I do the things I do on the authority of God, the chief priests and elders would certainly want to crucify him because they believe he's blaspheming, he's doing contrary things contrary to the law, he's breaking the Sabbath, he's um, disrupting the priestly leadership, being disruptive, rebellious, he calls himself Messiah, John 5.18, he calls himself the Son of God. Uh, they would believe that he's lying if he said, I'm doing these things on the authority of God. I don't really see any other live options. There were no other human authorities behind Christ, and he certainly didn't operate on demonic authority, although the Pharisees accused him of that too, right? Are we right that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? They said, John 8, 48. So Jesus could not correctly answer the first way, you know, on my own authority, nor convincingly the other way on God's authority. They wouldn't believe him. The first way was incorrect. The second way was not going to persuade the hard-hearted Jewish leaders. It would only inflame them to want to attack him right then and there. And it was not time for him to be attacked, was it? It wasn't time yet. A few more days until his time would come. Now, we've already alluded to this to some extent, but interestingly, Jesus had already answered the authority question before. If only they had paid attention. Listen to these verses. John 7, 17. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. By the way, I'm just thinking now, maybe you're wondering now, what's this on his own authority? I'm doing the will of the Father. Jesus in his humanity was acting as a perfect man. Got to remember that. He was doing the will of his Father as a man. God had uh, sent him to be the second Adam. Adam had been given a task. He blew it. Jesus came to redo, if you will, that task, and he succeeded stupendously to do so. But he's operating in his role as a man, in his humanity. And so he's following the, the orders from headquarters from God, not speaking on his own authority. John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Or John fourteen ten, Remember the upper room discourse, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and the questions about how can we know the way and all that. John 14, 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So Jesus has already made it clear the answer to the question. 
but of course the scribes, the chief priests, want to trip him up, trap him, and get him to say something that they can attack him on. In his humanity and human role, Jesus did not do things of his own accord. He was there to serve God. Luke 22, uh, 22, 42 says, Not my will, but thine be done. That's like the cherry on top of everything that tells you what I'm saying here. He's not doing things on his own authority. He's following the will of his Father in his humanity, by the way, which is a model for us. A model for us. He's left us footsteps to follow. And if he followed the Lord like that, guess what? We ought to follow the Lord like that as well. Now, when Jesus had conquered death and was glorified, a new level of authority was given to him because he was installed, if you will, as the Christ, the Son of God, the one who would be soon to be the king. And it says in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So therefore, go and make disciples. Beyond all of that, the Lord will be given a worldwide kingdom over which he will rule for a thousand years. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. That's in the future. But he does presently possess all authority during his humiliation, as we call it, in his, mere, in his human ministry. He was doing the will of his Father and on God's authority. So he was, uh, he was in a no-win situation. He couldn't answer either way here. We know the truth. We know what he was doing. We read this in other scriptures. So Jesus answers with his own question. Very quickly and wisely devised a clever tactic he did. Don't answer the question until they've answered a similarly hard question of his own creation. Boy, if you want to get into a question-asking contest with God, <laughs> you're in trouble. Ask Job. He'll tell you right away about questions from God. They're pretty tough, okay? Yeah, so the new question that Jesus asks is this. What was the source of John's authority? That is John the Baptist, whereby he prescribed baptism for the repentance of sins. Who gave him that authority? Now, we know the answer to the question. John 1.33 says, The one who sent me to baptize with water, speaking of God the Father. And we know the answer uh, to the priest's question, Jesus was doing things like cleaning out the temple, working miracles and all that on the authority of the triune God. So we, we know the answers, okay, if we're believers. But we come to a place now where the Lord has asked the question, there's silence hanging heavy in the air, and they're trying to figure out how in the world are we going to answer. Can you imagine that? They're demanding he answer the question right on the spot. He asks them a question, and they've got to go away and huddle for a while and figure out what they're going to say. So people around have got to be looking at this and saying, man, what is going on? He's really, he's really stumped them. And so even that just makes them look ridiculous. But anyways, now we come to the non-answer to the question, and actually the non-answer to both questions. So Jesus' question puts the priests and other leadership on the horns of a dilemma. The Bible records their deliberations about it. Very funny. Somebody must have been listening, you know, listening in so they could record this uh, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel. And they, they, could, they could say that John's authority was from heaven. And if so, however, they would open themselves up to the charge of not believing God because they did not believe the one whom he sent. 
Furthermore, if they said John's authority came from heaven, they would have had to believe John. And what, did John, what was John's ministry? Not just the ministry of baptism for repentance, but he said, I'm coming as one who is making straight the paths of the Lord, and I'm pointing to him. He must increase, I must decrease. And so if they said John's ministry came from heaven, John pointed to Jesus, they would have to believe in Christ. They couldn't do that, of course, they thought, and so then they, they would be answering their own question. Remember their question on whose authority? Well, if John's from heaven, then Jesus was on, coming from God's authority. So that wasn't going to work for them. They couldn't admit that because it would uh, you know, follow that Jesus was operating himself on heavenly authority. But on the other hand, if they said John's authority was from men, they'd be endangering their credibility and perhaps even existence because the crowds believed that John was sent from God. In this case, the hoi polloi had more wisdom than the leaders of the hoi polloi. And uh, you know, the religious leaders were supposed to know John's authority was, in fact, from heaven, but they couldn't say either way and, and kind of get themselves out of this uh, knot that they were put in by the Lord. So therefore, they said they did not know. Now, what do you think they really believed? They didn't believe he came from heaven. But how could they think that he didn't? What they really meant was that they did not want to submit themselves to the authority of God and listen to his servant. But did they really think that John's authority was purely uh, human? I mean, or suppose that they did believe that John was a mere human messenger with no divine authority. In that case, their non-answer meant that though they would like to say John's authority was human, so they would not have to believe in him, they didn't have the guts to do that because they feared man. What kind of a testimony is that for people who are supposed to be men of God? If they really feared God and thought John was in the wrong, they'd have the guts to say so. They were doing some, some wonderful politicking here. I'm speaking facetiously, sarcastically. They feared people more than they feared God. That's obvious. In addition, they rejected that which God had kindly given to them. God sent them a messenger ahead of time to kind of prepare the way. You know, you know like sometimes you feel like, hey, break the news to me a little more slowly. I mean, this was a big change. We have to admit, this is a huge change to go from the Old Testament era through all the captivity and the 400 years of silence to the New Testament Roman occupation, and now somebody's coming and saying, we're going to move on to a new covenant now. So God knows that, and he knows humans are like what Jesus said in the, in the parable of the new and the old wine. Remember? They like the old better. The old is better. You know, they don't want the new. Um, and so he graciously, gently sends a messenger to prepare the way before uh, the Lord comes. But they rejected what God did, and so they cannot expect to receive more from God in that rejecting mindset. If you do not accept what you can understand and what God has given to you, don't demand to be given clarity on those difficult things 
I don't know how, how can I say this? Is that getting across? I mean, Romans chapter 1, people have no excuse. If they've rejected, they, they look at the beauty of creation, they look at the stars and the heavens above, they look at the nature of God written on their hearts, the law of God, and they reject it. And they say, ah, it was all made by some impersonal force called evolution. And they reject the God who made them and loves them. God is not under any obligation to send them a messenger to tell them about the gospel. They've rejected what God has already shown them. Now, God has shown us a lot more. I mean, he's given humanity this book here. And it's actually not a book. It's 66 books. Tremendous evidence and revelation from God about him. But if we, and, and, and say you look at it and you say, well, I know it says God created us and Jesus loves us and he died for our sins and, uh, and all that, but I, I'm rejecting that. And I, I'm looking at some other things in the Bible and I'm saying, you know, I'd like to know more about it. Forget about it. You're not going to know more about those. You don't receive the basics. You've rejected God. Um, so don't expect to be given clarity on, on other things. And then, So they've rejected the revelation of God through John. They're in a bad way. What they should have done was admit that John brought a manifestly heaven-originated message. I mean, how could they not? If you're a pastor or a priest or something and somebody comes and says, you need to repent of your sin, and they've got a... They're, they're, serving the true God, and they've got a decent definition of what sin is, and they, they're talking about what repentance is. Wouldn't you be happy about that? Wouldn't you be like, yeah, must, you know, God has worked with them, and, and they're doing God's work. And besides that, he looked an awful lot like an Old Testament prophet in his manner. I mean, think of how he dressed, what he ate. Uh, he came like Elijah was promised in Malachi 4 and Isaiah 40, verse number 3. He said nothing wrong in terms of the law of Moses. But like so many prophets before him, what did the Jews want to do with him? Get rid of him. Why? They are glad to get rid of John as well when he was put up in prison. Good, get rid of him. By the way, the prophecy of the one coming, like Elijah, in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, those are the last words in the Old Testament. And then God graciously sends John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah. He looks an awful lot like Elijah. He acts like him. He preaches to repent. And shouldn't they have realized, like, the Old Testament ended there. We've waited for a while. Now something's happening. It's just an exact continuation of where we left off 400 years ago. Wow, this is amazing. This is the first of God's new revelation to the Jewish people after 400 years of silence. They should have perked up their ears. Because the Jewish leaders would not answer the question of Jesus, he told them that, he, that they did not hold up their end of the bargain, so to speak. Therefore, he would not answer their question either about the source of authority that he had. But of course, as we said, Jesus did already answer the question elsewhere to anyone who is willing to listen. So they would have immediately recognized that Jesus put them into the same kind of no-win situation that they tried to put him into. Wouldn't that just chagrin them? I mean, wouldn't they be a, I mean, like, oh, he got us again, you know, if it were only that humorous. It wasn't humorous. This is life and death. They would, they would know that he knew 
how can I say this? They knew that he knew that their answer to the question was not an honest answer. When they said to him, we don't know. Don't tell me you don't know. That's just a pitiful excuse for you not wanting to say what you really believe. His question served the second purpose of exposing that they fear man and not God. Now let me adapt the question here. We've come to the end of explaining what's happened here. Adapt this question of the Pharisees to you. By what authority do you live? And who gave you that authority? Or I could adapt the question of Jesus to you as well about the way you live. Where is that from? Is it from heaven or from men? Now, I know the easy answer is, Pastor, we're sitting here in a church. We know we're supposed to answer. My way of living is authorized by the Bible. I'm told how to live. God tells me. I read God's word. That's how we are. But is that the honest answer that is the real answer? Or is that just the Sunday school answer you know you're supposed to say? Where is your authority for life? The most common answer in the world is, people don't say it this way, but the most common answer is, my way of living comes from men, from people, from humanity, from culture, from science, from commonly agreed upon customs, from conformity to my group, or merely from myself. Basically, all of those answers boil down to the source of my authority is me. Me. It's a philosophy called self-autonomy. It's a kind of libertarianism that demands personal freedom. This is why people always scream for personal freedom and, and uh, free moral will. I spoke to a gentleman last night, and uh, he was shocked when I said, uh, people don't have a, an unfettered free will. They do not have an unfettered free will. What do you mean? Just a big question mark on his face. And I, I, I said, you know, when you, I illustrated with, a, you know, I showed him a 10-story building next to us, and I said, if you desired to leap that building, would you be able to do that? No, I don't have the physical capacity to do that, he said. Aha. Neither do you have the spiritual capacity to do certain things. How do I know that? Well, Jesus said, when you come to me and believe, you shall be made free indeed. Now, what that means to me is from the unbelieving state to the believing state, non-Christian state to the Christian state, you've moved from a state of bondage. Well, we know that. He who commits sin is a... If you're a slave, are you free? Patently not. So he moves you out of that state of bondage into a state of freedom. You, if you're in Christ, are more free than you were before you were in Christ. Thank God for that. That's why we say that you don't have an unfettered free will. Okay? Free will Baptists are not correct about that doctrine. They are wrong. Okay? Sin causes limitations. Sin causes slavery to sin. Sin causes bondage. We don't have a free will. We have a bound will until God looses us. You know, what's that song? I can't think of all the words of it now, but I was in the, in the dungeon and the light shone in, the chains fell off, and I walked out free. You were enchained to sin before you came to Christ. And then you were made free. 
So we want personal freedom and we want to be freed from all the shackles of all that. But if you're in sin, you're not free from anything. You may think you are because that is a convenient way of thinking to rid yourself of the awful feeling that you're a slave to something. Whether well thought out or not, many people live this way of self-autonomy. It's a self-central mindset, self-centered, centric mindset, coupled with the postmodern philosophy that absolute truth doesn't exist. This gives rise to what's called moral relativism. What that says is that um, what this says is that uh, you know others have told me or I've thought up myself my system of morals. It's just as good as yours, or yours is just as good as mine. And finally, this results in the mentality that we hear today, you cannot judge me. Why can you not judge me? Well, you can't judge me because your morals are no better than mine. Your system of thinking is no better than mine. So your morals, you can't judge me because your morals simply do not apply to me. You're on a totally different, because I have personal autonomy, You can't touch my autonomy. But this entire philosophy, my friends, is unworkable. A society cannot be successfully based on a purely morally relativistic approach. If murder is not wrong to some people, and stealing is not wrong to other society members, anarchy and chaos will result. Look at what's happening in in, uh, inner cities today with some of these district attorneys that aren't prosecuting or... uh, cashless bail and all these sorts of things, the people running wild. Running wild. That's a proof of what I'm saying here. Those people believe it's okay, or in fact, it's morally justified for us to go in a mob and steal a bunch of stuff from the store because, well, they stole it all from us historically, so we're just taking it back. That's their system of morals. But that's stealing. There are certain areas of life where this philosophy may be tolerable in the sense that it can sort of work. You know, like people talk about victimless crimes. But as others where it's simply intolerable, there's no, by the way, there's no victimless crime. You're a victim if you commit the crime. God is a victim because David said, against heaven and against you I've sinned, against you and you only. You're the, you're the top one that's been offended here, but... Not only is such an approach to society of of moral relativism unworkable based on this autonomy idea, but it's unbiblical. God made known both in written revelation as well as the law of conscience, which is unwritten, by the way, so you've got the written and the unwritten, that murder's wrong, stealing is wrong. You know it intuitively in your conscience, and your parents taught you those things from earliest youth. You also know that it's right to restrain and punish evil so that the society does not become unworkable and so that if you're a victim of a crime, say, your suffering is addressed properly. Can you imagine those victims of crime? All their stuff has been stolen out of their store. Nothing we can do about it. You know, talk to your insurance company. Where's the justice? Where, your son or daughter was killed, murdered. Where's the justice for that? What percentage of murders are actually solved in this country? Do you know? In some cities, 25%, 50%. It is sad. There are, people continue to do it because they think, well, I can get away with it. And sometimes they do get away with it. Not really. Yeah, well, they think they'll get away with it until they stand before judgment and God talks to them. 
God also tells us not only murder and stealing, but, you know, because those are kind of obvious, but God tells us blaspheming him is wrong, worshiping false gods is wrong, coveting and lying and dishonoring your parents are wrong, uh, as is adultery. Those maybe not seem as intuitive as murder or lying, but they're part of the same moral code given by the same God. There are other problems with the I make my own rules. If you live a life by making your own rules, listen to what the scripture says. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's said twice in Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25. Another is that society that does not have these basic rules will be broken down, as we see in some places in our own land and around the world. A third wrong thing is that these things displease God and turn him against you. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Isaiah 59, verse number 7. Your sinful nature wants self-rule. Just know that. Your sinful nature wants to rule itself. In your heart, that's like the, that's like the fox in the hen house. You're the hen house, and the fox is your sin nature, and it's in there trying to run the show. You've got to kick him out. That's, that's damage. That's destruction. In your heart, you desire to be your own boss. Since Adam and Eve in the garden, humans have been choosing their own way over God's way. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. That's the self-autonomy, moral relativism approach to life. That is the, I'm the authority. Who is your authority? The other option for your authority is heaven. You can answer, I mean, you could answer, myself, which is the most common answer, or you could say there's other world religions, or you could say demons, even. We touched on that, that option before with Christ, obviously not, but the Pharisees thought so. But really the only other viable option is God and Jesus Christ. Those other ones, by the way, other world religions, you judge them to be right, you will follow them. That comes right back to self-autonomy again. But our Our other option for our authority is heaven, God, Jesus. All authority has been given to him. Every knee will bow to him, Philippians 2, 10 to 11. He is Lord. Each of us must come to terms with that fact. We are not masters of our own destiny. You know, when you are coming to the end of your life, you will realize you are helpless. You are not the master of your own destiny. You you can't, you can't, uh, artificially prolong your life to some, you know, long, some, you know, far future time. You can't cryogenically freeze yourself and come back to life. It's appointed unto people once to die. It doesn't matter how much technology you apply to the problem, how much medicine, how much money, or anything. Everyone will die. Take it to the bank. The absolute truth comes into focus, especially at the end of life. Uh, at least the truth that all will die. But if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from sin, from self, and the devastating impact of self-autonomy. When you confess Jesus as Lord, you're saying, I'm not the Lord. I'm not the autonomous power that I thought that I used to be, that I used to think that I was. There are no other live options, my friends. Now, we ask again then as we close, what is the source of authority for you? How do you actually live your life?
Is it God or is it you? And by you, I mean all the other things that you would judge more important than the Word of God. You know, you judge science to be more important than God's Word, so I'm going to follow that. Just know that that ultimately resolves down to a self-autonomy in your heart. If your authority is you, why do you believe so much in yourself? Do you have enough knowledge, enough experience, enough age, enough years behind you, enough wisdom to make the right decisions? Be honest and realistic with your answer. For example, do you know in yourself, I know we do because we read the Word of God, but in yourself, do you know what happens to a person after death? Do you ever stop and think about that? Like without the Bible, it would just be all speculation. And what's that speculation based on? Me, my authority. You know, I think there's reincarnation, or I think there's this, or I think there's nirvana, or whatever. Or I think there's uh, conditional immortality. Or I think we just are snuffed out and don't exist anymore. Who cares what you think? I mean, why would I want to believe you? I mean, you don't know what's going to happen after you die. Do you even have a prayer of guiding your steps properly in this life? Why should I believe in your ability to do that as over against God's infinitely wise, experienced, could, could I say thousands of years of experience, even though it's beyond that, but, you know, he, he's going to guide us far better. Remember, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Our lives are not our own. It's not in our ultimate purview to direct our own steps. Jeremiah 10.23 says that. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His humanity, listen now, an argument from greater to lesser, if Jesus Christ and His humanity was subject to the authority of God, why aren't you? You're nothing compared to Him. You are a small little speck of a servant compared to Jesus Christ. If He did that and saw God as His authority, why not you? He did the will of God and modeled for us how we should do the same. Do you fear God? Do your objections to his moral demands really justify that you can make up your own morality? Real joy comes when you can honestly say that you're living your life in accordance with the authority of God. When he's your Lord, when he's your guide, when he's your boss, when he's your teacher, when he's your counselor, and so on, then you can have confidence that you're doing the right stuff with your life. And so with these questions, I just kind of repeat the questions back to you. Who is your authority? And I pray to God that it is God and his word because that's the only way you're going to have a good outcome. Everything else leads to destruction, my friends, and I don't pray that for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and to think about this matter of authority. Thank you that we see clear testimony in Scripture about how Jesus lived and what his source of authority was in this earthly life of his, and may we follow that same pattern. May we live in the footsteps that he gave for us. In Jesus' name, amen.